Hey, good morning, my friends, and to all of you moms out there, happy Mother's Day. And to all of you who have come up to me over the last week and said, how in the world are you going to give a talk in a series called Love, Marriage, Sex, and Lies, while also acknowledging and addressing the fact that it's Mother's Day and all the moms in the audience, I say, that's a really good question. Now, actually, uh, believe it or not, it's, it's actually a pretty easy question. Because if you've been with us, you know we've been working our way through this incredibly beautiful and insightful book in the Bible called The Song of Songs. It is the self-entitled greatest song ever sung. And while, yes, at its core, it is about, well, it's about sexual desire and intimacy, love and marriage, it is also about women and men, wives and husbands, and believe it or not, also references the role of a mom. So let's get at it. Now, you might remember where we left off. Song of Songs is this eight-chapter collection of Hebrew love poems sung back and forth, mostly between an unnamed man and an unnamed woman. If you're just joining us, you might be wondering why there'd be a collection of songs about sex and intimacy and love and marriage. Well, as we've been saying for, for weeks, why, why would that be in there? Why would it be in your Bible? Well, because this is really about that. While the book is not strictly allegorical, it is about all of those things and God's truth regarding them. It's also, as we've been seeing, very analogous to the love that God has for his people, his church. God loves his people the way a bridegroom loves his bride and yearns for that kind of intimacy and knownness and oneness with them, with, with you and I, that we see on display in this incredible book. Last week, well, if Song of Songs was to be viewed as a complete song, I would say that last week we, we looked at the chorus of the refrain, the most repeated part of the song actually repeated in the eight chapters three different times. The line, well, it was actually a solemn oath sung by the woman. Here's what she said over and over and over again. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir or awaken love until it pleases. You might remember this was a warning by the woman, a woman who had found the man of her dreams, the man that she desired to be with both physically and to marry publicly. She sings to all of her bridesmaids, the women in town, to make sure that even though they might have the right man, she, she begs them, do not stir up or awaken yourselves sexually until the time is right. And we can see, as we did last week, where and why that that time is only within the covenant bonds of marriage. Again, she sings the same chorus three different times. The first time she sings it, interestingly enough, is in chapter two, right after her mister came up with one of the great pickup lines in history. I mean, it's gotta be right, it's in the Bible. Now remember, if you've been with us, you know that the woman in the song, she's been struggling with some body image issues relative to her looks, and it seems like she's, well, she's held her heart back a little bit in the story, so she wouldn't be hurt again if, if he, the one she was in love with, if he were to reject her. And so she sings to him, self-derogatorily, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, which sounds beautiful, but in her culture, those were just common desert flowers. Today we might say something like, I'm a dandelion in the backyard. But then, then he hits her with this line. Now, 
listen, there are a lot of good pickup lines out there. How do you think I got Joan Eisman? I mean, there's the classics like, are you a parking ticket? Because you've got fine written all over you. And there's the cheesy ones, things like, it's a good thing I have my library card because I am totally checking you out. Then there's even the more modern ones. I don't know, something akin to, are you related to, and we'll clean this up for church consumption, are, are you related to Jean-Claude Van Dang? Because dang, you are gorgeous. I think the one that swept Joan off her feet was, well, here I am now, what are your other two wishes? See, this guy, he's even better. He meets her, well, he meets her where she is, and he sings to her, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. He tells her, you know what, you might think that of yourself, but if you do, then you need to understand that if you're just a wildflower, then you're a wildflower in a field full of, of, of leaves, baby. As we said last week, it was at this moment, it was right at this moment when she, she decides she's in. She, she now feels safe, that she could trust him. She could give herself fully to him with nothing held back. And at one point she even declares, quote, I am sick with love. But it had to be more than just that line that did it, right? Well, I think it was. In fact, I know it was because she reveals what it was in one of the more famous verses in the Bible. In fact, walking out of church last week, a friend came up and told me that this was her favorite verse in all of the scriptures. She begins with this. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. She's singing this back to him now. With great delight, she sings, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. You see, for her, this is, well, it's no longer merely about how he looks. Something has now changed. She now compares the man that she's in love with to an apple tree. Why an apple tree? Well, Philip Riken writes that apple trees are strong, especially in a desert climate. They offer protective shade from the heat of the day. And remember now that this girl, she had grown up doing heavy labor under the hot sun. Maybe best of all, apple trees produce juicy, delicious apples. And while this is not necessarily a sexual innuendo, if the woman's talking about sex at all, she's much more restrained than other poets from the ancient world. The, the fruit of the apple tree is simply an image of natural beauty that expresses her desire for a fruitful relationship. You see, the man that she's looking for, he not only protects her, but he provides for her. And so now she feels as if she can, tr she can fully trust herself to him, with him, into his care. And then, then she sings this. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. She sings, he took me to the banqueting house. He took me on a date. He, he took me out for dinner. And when he did, while he did, while we walked there and ate there, his banner that was flying over me publicly for all to see, waving high above my head, flapping proudly in the wind, was love. Now, think this through. Banners, and, and not just in the ancient world, but today, banners serve, well, they serve a couple of different purposes. As Americans, right, we're, we're pretty familiar with two iconic banner images. The first one is from a painting commem commemorating our nation's inception. 
It was painted by Archibald Wildred in 1875. It's now called The Spirit of 76. When he painted it, he called it Yankee Doodle. Almost all of us have seen one version of this or another. It always contains three continental soldiers marching abreast, one playing a fife, one playing a drum, and one displaying the flag, the banner of the United States. The second, and just as renowned an image, is that of four World War II soldiers defiantly planting the American flag on Iwo Jima. You see, banners and, and standards, flags, all of them are, are terms for an emblem that's related to a military endeavor. In fact, the Hebrew word the young woman sings related to her banner, it derives from a verb meaning to flaunt, suggesting the significance of, of a military banner, namely conspicuous, uh, its conspicuousness. It's meant to be seen, the banner, and recognized because this man wants his banner over his woman seen. And why? Well, think about it. Banners declare, display identities. One writer I came across this week described it this way. He said, you know, the rising sun on, on a flag, it publicized Japan. In, in World War II, the, the swastika, it announced Germany. The stars and the stripes proclaims the United States. In fact, right, a soldier brandishing the stars and the stripes is declaring, I am an American, I'm a citizen of the United States keep going forward with it, right? Like a, a soldier who loses his comrades in the chaos and confusion of battle, he, he relocates his place when he sees his country's flag. It, re, it you know, resets him. Moses, when he was taking a census of Israel, he commanded the sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp and each man by his own standard, his own banner, according to their armies. Those beneath the same flag are acknowledging something. They're acknowledging that I belong to this troop and this troop belongs to me. Now in the second place, a banner also flaunts warning, if you will. I mean, some flags do so explicitly, right? Witness the, uh, the inscription of a famous flag from the American Revolution, don't tread on me. All do so implicitly. The flag says to your enemy, I am here if you think you want to attack me, or here I come, resist and die, or flee. Think about it, the sight of, of the flag of a formidable enemy inspires fear in a, in a weaker soul and it sends chills down the spine of the most courageous soldiers. And that's because banners, these things are really about something else. They have power, they represent it. See, in the Song of Songs, this man sure did for his beloved. Gentlemen, this Mother's Day, in light of the power these public standards still hold, my question for each of us this morning is what banner is flying over the head of your beloved? I mean, really, if we could see it publicly, what banner have you purposely, or maybe even not so, what, what banner have you hung over her? And guys, this is such a powerful Mother's Day question. It's a profound one, really. I, I've been asking myself this question about my wife, the mother of my children this week, and trying to relate it and our story to the story of the song of the man and the woman in, in Song of Songs. 
as I thought about it, I guess my story, and gentlemen, maybe it's yours. My story is that if you were to see the banner flying over my wife's head, you'd notice, well, that those banners, I've changed them out over the years. You know what the first one was, though? When I think back to our, our early days, when I, I was taking her out to our banquet rooms of the late 80s and early 90s, the banner I flew over Joan Berg's head was trophy because she was hot and I was not. And I loved nothing more than taking her to the banquets. I remember one time, Joan came down to Rutgers to meet me. We were gonna go out to a concert or something, and so she came up to pick me up and knocked on my dorm room door, and there was a couple other guys from the floor in the room, and when she walked in the room, I still remember one of the guys, and I mean, Joan looked incredible. She, she walked in, one of the guys literally smacked himself in the forehead like that. He, he, he yells out loud, you've got to be kidding me. He gets up and walks out. And I mean trophy. Trophy might sound like a nice banner to hang over a woman's head in one way. For a little while, that might satisfy them. I mean, I mean in one sense, I was acknowledging her beauty. But look, if I'm honest, in another way, in a deeper way, the banner that I hung over her head, it was about me. It wasn't really about her beauty or her worth. It was in 1986, it was about me and my ability to get a girl that looked like that. Unfortunately, in this case, this was about that. It was really about me and not her. And the problem with, the problem with Trophy being the flag over her head was it was simply related to her beauty and her youth and, and her hotness at the time. And that's a banner that no one can keep flying forever. I mean, when we fly that banner over the women we love, we sentence them to this lifetime of insecurity, wondering when we're going to decide trophy no longer fits and take that flag down. But then, then a few years later, 1992, I did take that banner down, all right, and I replaced it with a different one. This one was short, three letters. I took the trophy banner down and I raised up mom. High, like really high, and for like a really long time. You see, the banner I flew over Joan was mom. But here's the problem. She wasn't my mom, nor was she ever meant to function in that capacity, but somehow the dynamic was that I began to let her function that way. Now, don't get me wrong, and moms, you know this. Mom is a wonderful banner to have hung over you. In fact, I know this Mother's Day, I know in our church I have friends who long to have this banner hung over them. And, and, and there is lots of pain for lots of, of women who long for that banner. But husbands, hear me now. That banner is not for you to hang, unfortunately. Oftentimes, when, when the mom banner goes up, it has lots of little sub-banners that go up the flagpole with it. Banners like, Cleaner, cooker, bill payer, child keeper, laundry provider. I mean, I could go on and on and on, and trust me, I could go on and on and on. And all of you moms know this. Now, please understand, I never intentionally lifted any of those banners over my wife, but somehow I began to live like I saw all of them. 
some years ago now. My wife, gently, lovingly, well, she let me know two things. The first was one when I took this job, she informed me, and rightfully so. She said, you may be a pastor, you may be the pastor, but in our marriage, you are not my pastor, you are my husband. That was profound. Second thing she started to tell me, and it took some time to hear it, I have to tell you, and she repeated it often, usually while picking something up, was, you know, I'm not your mother. See, I, I remember specifically one night, I came home from work, and, and she, with the four kids running all over, she said, John, you have no idea what it's like to have somebody that you constantly have to clean up after, that you're always having to feed, while you're nonstop at their beck and call. And now, in addition to you, John, I also have to take care of these four kids. I mean, I, I had flown the Mon flag over her head. Gentlemen, we must not do this. I have tried my best to take this down, not perfectly, and I think Joan would tell you far from completely. But guys, we, we must take this flag down. The banner over her head must be love, and that is not an easy banner to fly, boys, but that is our call. Paul makes our job clear what it would look like to fly the banner of love over your wife's head. And, and, and let me explain, because this is about that. Paul helps us see it in our song, right? The husband, in a sense, is playing the role of God, and the bride is, well, the bride is us. It's the church. To fly the banner of love over the head of your wife, you take down the mom banner and you raise the love banner. How? Well, I like the message translation, the modern take on Paul's instructions to the husbands in Ephesus. Here's what he wrote, contemporized. He says, husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving and not getting. Christ's love makes the, whole, makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does, a husband, everything the husband does and says, gentlemen, listen to this, is designed to bring the best out of her. Like dressing her in a dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really, he goes on, he goes, they're really doing themselves a favor since they already are one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and he pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we're parts of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to know it all. He writes, but what is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church, and this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife. Gentlemen, as Christ has raised the flag of love over you, you so too should raise the flag of love over your wife. That flag is marked by giving and not getting. Everything, Paul says, everything that husband does and says is designed to bring the best out of his wife. Let the banner you fly over her tell everyone that you and her are one. 
I belong to her, she belongs to me, and may that banner flaunt and be a warning for anyone that would come against your oneness. It is a wonderful blessing if God made your wife a mom, but husbands, don't you fly the wrong flag over her. Now, just two more things. I want you to notice something so profound in the song. It's really clear if you read the chapters that love and marriage are sung. They're sung of not merely as private decisions. Uh, they are, but they, they, also, they also have and value communal input and, and counsel. Uh, you see this, and we'll go into it in the coming weeks, but you know whose input is at the top of that list? Well, in the third chapter, the woman finds this man of her dreams, the one she's been singing over after searching for him, and she sings, I found him who my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until. Hmm. I would not let him go. She's actually gotten hold of the man of her dreams. She's not going to let him go until she, until she does something with him. Until what? Until... I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now listen, here, here's what I know. Everybody out there is not, enough, is not a mother, but everybody out there has a mother. And this Mother's Day, I just want to pause on this one line for a second. Here we have a young woman, mature, old enough to be married, full of desire. She's finally found the man of her dreams. Uh, she thinks. She just needs one thing. She needs her mother's opinion, her mother's approval. Because you know what, it's true. It's true, there really is just something about a mother's intuition. This is a, this is a big reminder for each and every one of us about the gift of a mom. Now I know that not every one of us has had a perfect one, I understand that. But look, the truth is that none of us have had a perfect one. Every mom's a human being f at first or, or first. But I think th that there's a warning here in the song. Don't be too quick to rush past or, or go by the counsel of a mom because here is the truth, and, and this is my experience. There is no love on this earth like the love of a mother. And again, I know this is painfully so, not everybody's experience. But the truth is, I believe that God has given mothers far more than merely cooking and cleaning as a duty. God has given them relational wisdom to be shared. Your mom, she might not know your finances, she might not understand your career and have career advice, but I'll venture this. Your mom, merely by the wisdom that comes with the years and maybe a little bit out of that mother's intuition, your mother likely knows people. So what I would say is for any of you contemplating major relationship questions, you could do yourself some good with a call to good old mom. And, and ladies, this Mother's Day, let me implore you of one more thing. Mothering. I'm not going to break any, any new ground here. Being a mom is really hard, ridiculously hard. 
And, and it's emotional and personal at its core. In fact, I'm not sure there is anything more personal. You literally give your life away bit by bit, piece by piece, day by day. And come on, here's what we know. Today is Mother's Day, so I'm sure you're gonna get some flowers. Maybe, maybe you'll get a brunch out of it or something. But for the most part, I mean, I know this, your sacrifice, I've watched it in my own home. Your sacrifice often goes unnoticed and sometimes, especially with kids, sometimes it's even met with disdain. And ladies, moms, can I implore you, in those moments of tension and turmoil, can I, can I ask you to remember the story of this young woman bringing her love home to her mother? She wouldn't go forward with the man of her dreams without her mom without her opinion, without her approval. This is the design, this is the desire that God has for you, that, that you would continue to play in the role of your child, even when they're grown. That kind of role in the lives of your children. You're going to move quite naturally from caregiver to counselor. Now, ladies, notice, she doesn't rush out to her daughter to push her opinion on her daughter. It was her daughter who came to seek counsel from the mom. There's a lesson there. But moms, even in the midst of the most difficult of the days, do everything you can to maintain that kind of relationship with your kids. They're going to need it. A and you. Moms, can I, can I implore you to take on one more difficult parenting task. Can I implore you to be a peacemaker? Jesus called them blessed. But if you can, even in the crazy days of raising kids, if you can maintain peace and relationship with your kids through their teens, into their 20s, it will be they who are blessed. When your kids are two, they need you to tie, to tie a shoe. But when they're 22, they're going to need you to help them. Well, to help them to know what to do. And I have to tell you, I've unfortunately seen way too many moms and kids let teenage tension turn into lifelong separation. Moms, your God-given role is too important. It's, it's too important for you to think that your job ends when the car pulls out for college. A and kids, and that includes me, Carol Huck Baylor's kid, Please understand that your mom has a love for you, unmatched, and a wisdom to share with you that you will find nowhere else. All of us value that. Seek it. One day you're going to miss it. Heck, it's Mother's Day. Give your mom a call and ask her advice on something and then tell her why. I'll tell you this. There were a couple other girls I dated that my mom was not a fan of, but she loved Joan from the day I first brought her home. Her opinion mattered to me. It still does, and she was right. Finally, this Mother's Day, and, and this is for every lady in the room, I have one final thought. It's, it's really more of a question. Ladies, what banner have you raised over your own head? I think, and I think unfairly really, that Christianity o over time has been blamed for raising the wrong flags over the heads of women. Flags that maybe say women are bit players in a man's world, that their roles are limited or minor, or maybe, and, and I know women who have experienced this, 
that if they're not a wife or not a mother, then they failed at their primary God-given roles. So I want to close with just a thought on that because, ladies, all of those flags need to come down. In the very first chapter of the Bible, Moses writes that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women created by God, equal and yet distinct in their ability to reflect to the world the image of God. Now in chapter two, we get a bit more detail here. It's written that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And of course, that word translated there, helper, well, that has contributed to lots of bad banners that have been raised over the heads of women for centuries. Not partner, not equal image bearer, but helper. Now, of course, helper wouldn't be a bad banner to fly. We're all called to serve one another. The problem is when that banner gets relegated to women only because the word helper there, the word helper, well, when it gets translated, in other places in the scripture when it's translated, and by far, the person that helper word is most often used to refer to, it's God. The psalmist wrote, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Same word. Now hear me in line. If that word is most often used to describe God, then clearly the word is not being used to describe somebody lower down the priority chain. And notice, what was the role of the helper? I've gotten this mixed up a lot. God did not make woman to help Adam because Adam was so overwhelmed with his work. God made Eve so that Adam would not be alone. He said, that's what he said wasn't good. He made Eve for Adam so that Eve and Adam could experience what this entire book and series is about, so that they could experience oneness, knownness, unity, love. He made Eve so that Adam and Eve could experience every day what God does. Holy community, the love of the, of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to experience that same kind of oneness. And then check this out. God, God, in that oneness, he gives them the mission of humanity. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God gave them both the mission. He didn't give it to Adam and say, Eve, in case he can't finish up, you, you take over the lesser roles. The mandate to rule was given to them both. They were both to have dominion over all the earth. Now listen, there are arguments out there that say, well, you know, since man was made first before woman, he was the primary creation, thus he's the superior one. Ladies, let me just tell you, if you ever hear that one, just remind whoever it is that's telling you that garbage that the problem with that argument of order works both ways because you could say that God made the animals first and then the man. So since man was an improvement on the animals, then the woman is the improved version of the man. She's the upgrade, she's the 2.0. Can I get an amen? The truth is, there is no superiority in God's original design. Now I can show you where it crops up, where it comes from. Next chapter, when sin enters the world, when the fall of man occurs, notice one of the losses that hits humanity. Not only do we 
I don't know, lose the ability to not have to, to, to toil all of the days of our lives to eat from the ground. Not only will children now come forth in pain, not only will all creation be subject to death and decay, but check this out. There is also the loss of this unity, this oneness that God desired for us. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Here's the problem. And I know that this impacts banners that women have flown over their heads for centuries. This was not God's plan for women that he laid out at the beginning of creation. It is not God's plan. It is part of the curse. This is why husbands, you better be careful what banner you raise over your wives because they were not created with the purpose of serving you or your kids. Ladies, you need to be careful about what flags you fly, the ones you raise over your own heads, because the expectations which have been placed on you in this culture in our day to be it all and to do it all, to look like a supermodel, to raise kids like a supermom, to work outside and inside the home like superwoman, they are, quite frankly, unachievable and far, far too, too many women are crumbling under their weight. They're contorting themselves to try to meet them and, and often, if I'm just honest, self-medicating themselves at night when they can't. There's something inside so many moms. I, I've had plenty of dads tell me that they're great dads. I don't know if I've ever had a mom come and tell me she's a great mom. Far, far too many women and moms are raising flags of failure over their heads. And, and as a father of two daughters, I know what it would do to me to see them raise that flag. And I know what it does to your heavenly father when he sees you do the same thing. Ladies, may I remind you of something this Mother's Day? And this is for every woman, mom or not. This is about that. Your heavenly father in this story, your heavenly husband, he has a flag to fly over you. Now remember, flags had two purposes. They flaunt identity and they flaunt warning. And the flag he flies over every woman in this congregation is love. Love. You see, you are not just enough. You are, to your heavenly husband, more than enough. His banner over you this morning, it identifies you as the object of his great love. Ladies, according to the Song of Songs, this is what the Lord sings to you this morning. This is such a beautiful song, and I'm afraid we don't read it as if it's being sung to us. Ladies, this morning, would you hear this as if it's from God, because it is? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Ladies, do you hear him? Can you let that be louder than the voice in your head? Because when we're drawn to him according to the wooing of this grace, when we come under a banner, 
that declares essentially, I am his and he is mine. The banner of his love identifies and unites, well, it, it, it identifies and unites us with him in, in purpose and cause and righteousness and oneness. Listen now, you, you're not a failure because you're not a mom. You're not a failure because for some reason, and this is just again about every, every mom I know, you think you're not a good enough mother. Ladies, mom or not, this Mother's Day, his banner over you, you declares, I don't care what the world has said to you. I don't care what you've said to yourself. His banner over you declares, this one belongs to me. Try to harm her and watch what happens. Gentlemen, this Mother's Day, what banner have you been flying over your wife? Whatever it's been, take it down. Fly a new one. May your banner over her be love. Kids, it's all of us, understand the gift your gracious Heavenly Father has given you in the unconditional love. Well, the unconditional love of and the God-given wisdom of your mom. And can I, can I encourage you, don't just understand that. Revel in it. Seek in it. Moms, you have a role to play when they are two, but don't forget you have a role to play when they're 22. And ladies of every age, I don't care what the voice in your head has told you. Forget the lies the culture has pressed into you. Today, hear the song of your heavenly husband who sings, Arise, my love, and come with me. And may you know, may you feel, may you trust this Mother's Day and every day that his banner over you is love.